You're listening to the news on RTHK. The weak global economy. The volatility and the upswings and the moods. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks snapped a two-day losing streak ahead of the Fed decision on monetary policy. Europe struggles towards a solution as Cyprus rips into creditors and lawmakers will begin the debate today on the China-backed plan for the first popular election of Hong Kong's chief executive in 2017. Asian futures rose, signaling that stocks here may track a rebound in U.S. shares ahead of the Fed reports on monetary policy. We'll ask Kingston Securities' Dickie Wong more about markets. After that, Bloomberg's Natasha Khan will give us an update on the MERS outbreak and the possible impact on the economy. Then uh, we talk uh, commodities with our last guest, Platts Asia's Paul Bartholomew. Stuart Altcroft of City Trust is guest host today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Renita. Stuart, is it game over for Greece? Um, yeah, but it doesn't doesn't want to admit it yet. I think um, the biggest problem is I don't think Greece has got any money. And therefore, how is it going to pay back when it hasn't got any money with which to pay back? Yeah, so maybe it has to continue playing on for just a little bit longer. Yeah, we'll play a long game here. <laughs> <laughs> Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras has accused the International Monetary Fund of criminal responsibility for Greece's debt crisis. Here's NYU Stern School of Business Professor. Sir Nicholas Economides. Uh, I would say that Mr. Tsipras is uh, uh, responsible for criminal irresponsibility for bringing the country to this terrible situation in which it's where we have a gamble whether Greece is going to stay in the euro or not. I mean, that uh, doesn't help. It's a very tough statement which uh, doesn't help. But in the last five months, this government has um, used many tough statements of this sort which uh, alienated the European partners, the IMF and the ECB. So what is it that international creditors want to hear at this point? Here's Mitsubishi's uh, head of economic research, Brendan Brown. The main creditors here are official institutions. There was not many private creditors around. Sure. What I, what I would say is most uh, relevant here are the investors in the whole range of other high-yield European products, whether it's Spanish or Italian debt, and what's the message they get from this. And if the message they get is that there's going to be much more political resistance in future to Merkel and Draghi doing anything like this in future, then they're going to be more anxious about the credit and creditworthiness of, of those countries, Spain and Italy. Stuart, is there any chance that, you know, Berlin and Brussels will see what Cyprus has been saying, that, uh, that they've, they have uh, forced an austerity on Greece that the country just can't deal with anymore? Um, well, they could do. There's a, there is a chance. There's a small chance, I, I guess. But, you know, uh, Greece has been going through this austerity period for quite a few years now. It's, um, it's seen vast amounts of money. I mean, we're talking about 
hundreds of billions of dollars leave the country. The wealthy have moved their money out, um, and it doesn't have any money left. And and the and, and there isn't the opportunity within Greece to sort of regenerate cash flows at the moment. It will take a lot longer than just the next uh, three days, as it were. <laughs> so, do you think this is something that's going to drag on right through the summer? It can do. Um, there's a possibility. I mean, we're, we keep having a new deadline. Friday's another deadline. 30th of June is another deadline. Uh, we keep hearing these deadlines. And, and, uh, and for as long as we keep hearing the deadlines, I suppose it could drag on for months. Mm. Now, the Dow Jones gained 113 points to close at 17,904. The S&P 500 also rose 0.6% to 2096, while the Nasdaq advanced half a percent to 5,055. But the euro fell as it appeared more likely that debt-stricken Greece would default or have to leave the single currency. Stuart, would you say that global markets have priced in the fact that there may not be a solution? Not completely. Um, Frankly, there's not a lot of impact on the United States the biggest impact quite clearly is on in the US. Asia, there's almost no impact as well. So uh, from the global markets perspective, I don't think uh, a Grexit, as it's called, uh, will make a great deal of difference. The euro uh, will be impacted and European markets will be impacted. But the Greek economy is only about one and a half percent of the size of the European economy. So it's not really that big either. Mm. Okay, well, the Fed uh, concludes its two-day meeting today and will soon release its report on monetary policy. Everyone is wondering if a rate hike is on the horizon. But is the Fed at all cognizant of the ripple effects of its decision on world markets? Here's Bloomberg Intelligence's Carl Riccadonna. The Fed is definitely attuned to this, but the Fed's primary focus is on the domestic economy, on the labor market, on inflation. So uh, they are certainly uh, cognizant of the potential ripple effects. And what Janet Yellen is trying to do uh, is to signal that this will be a very, very gradual Fed, a one and done, two and done type of uh, Fed uh, in uh, 2015 at least. Uh, And that will prevent some significant backup in interest rates or tightening of financial conditions. That's that's a prerequisite for the Fed to move. The Fed is not going to be confident enough to make the leap if they are worried about a taper tantrum or a dramatic appreciation in the dollar or a major pullback in the equity. And Shanghai stocks were in the red last night, uh, but uh, perhaps not spooked uh, by Greece, as Stuart says, although they certainly look like they're heading to bubble territory. Here's Macquarie Investment Management's co-head of Asian listed equities, Sam Lecornu. I mean, if you go back to January 2014, it's gone from 400 billion RMB to now 2 trillion RMB. There's a very strong correlation with the Shanghai performance. So we're talking about A shares here and how much margin lending has actually been used. The CSRC has recently just come out with some news to say we're going to cap in terms of the margin lending, you know, four times the net capital of the stockbrokers. So you'd expect a lot of further placements by the stockbrokers going forward. But essentially, it, it is something which is quite concerning. When you look at the amount of margin margin lending that's extended and also I guess the velocity of the money as well. Um, it's what the point now where I think the A shares are getting fully valued and you know we've been very long China. We, we invest in the H shares. In fact we've been for Asian listed equities. We've been overweight China for seven years. So this is the first time in seven years that we've become bearish particularly towards the A share market and I think it's really to the point now where valuations are a concern and where those valuations have come from has really been the margin lending. 
All right, so let's bring in Dickie Wong, uh, who is the executive director of Kingston Securities. Good morning, Dickie. Good morning. So, Dickie, uh, this is an interesting point, uh, you know, brought up by Sam LaCorno of Macquarie. He says that uh, the A-shares market uh, is really getting to the point where it will soon, you know, be becoming overvalued. Do you agree? Well, if you talk about um, Asia uh, as a single country, yes, you may. But in fact, single, Asia is not a single country because um, there's so many countries, so many economies. If we talk about um, the Chinese um, stock market or, or also the Chinese economy, you may say sometimes it's strange because, as we all know, the economy uh, has slowed you down, uh, but the stock market has surged 1.5 times in the past just 12 months. So why? Because all the people in China pour their savings and money, and sometimes they borrowed money and just all that to the stock market. That's the reason why. And um, it's time to for a little pullback. Um, as I, well, last time uh, when I talked to you on the show, uh, I say I said I, I do really believe, strongly believe that selling me and go away will be the best policy. And in fact, um, there's just a pullback because less than 20% pullback from the, from the top to the bottom now just a pullback. So nothing so strange. So and also, yeah, two two trillion RMB, um outstanding debt and margin debts that's make me so nervous. So it doesn't sound like you think uh, that Shanghai stocks have reached bubble territory then. Is that right? Well you may you you may say bubble because when we talk about the the Chin export, I mean and Shenzhen, there's just some some one one hundred and forty something listed company there, but there's there there's a, a smaller companies and also make, uh, mainly tech stocks, um, just like fly high like uh, Lushy TV and um, Internet Video Services Company, uh, they they stock just jump jump up um, two point five times in the past year and um, the, the PE ratio now is. 300 something time that's crazy this skyrocket but mm-hmm. but overall generally speaking 80 times for pe for this gene next next um index i think it's just some something overvalued that's simply a big bubble but if we talk about the, the shanghai market like the shanghai composite as a whole 22 times pe is sustainable because the, the earnings growth rate uh will be there but Comparatively, why don't buy the egg share? The Hong Kong stock market is only trading at less than 13 times for PE, and also the egg shares less than 10 times. So, whereas the Hong Kong stock market compared to the mainland egg share market, Hi, definitely. Dickie. It's half price to buy a, buy a, buy a handbag, I yeah. always say. Dickie yeah. Stewart here. Um, when you're looking Hi. at the market, though, I mean, to, to burst a bubble, you need some catalyst. And at the yeah. moment, I can't see what catalyst that would be in the China markets. Can you see one? Well, the catalyst is mainly from the people, as I said. No, the, um, the people are the, putting the money in. They're not taking it out. And uh, that, that's why it's going so well. <laughs> Exactly, you are so right. Because they are nonsense. They are, they don't talk about the fundamentals. They just put all in like a casino. Yeah, that's why. So they so, need so they need an alternative, right? But there isn't one. But yeah, because the the property market is not doing well in mm. China as well. Yeah. But there's so, just so much money. Yep. So what can they do now? Yeah. But um, one thing I I would um, clear one to would tell that um, the Chinese SEC. 
they may may will do something very soon because when the marginal reach two trillion RMB, that's I'm I'm quite concerned. Um, but also this week we talk about the short term trend, uh, a lot of IPOs, and um, it may cool down. Um, the Chinese stock market, furthermore, but as I said, the eight shares market is relatively cheap, and I, I think it's time to to look at it now um, for the Hang Seng Index, and um, I think it will test um, the twenty six thousand three hundred. I just told um, the program that to, yeah, just talk about this um, just two weeks ago, but um, I, I think it will test this level, and um, also the one hundred. Moving days, moving average at twenty six thousand, and um, for the eight shares index, it will test also the one hundred um, moving days, moving average at uh, thirteen thousand. Dicky, you know one of the reasons why we've seen such a rally. I mean, one of the things that it can be connected to is, of course, you know the Hong Kong Shanghai Stock Connect and uh, sort of uh, the leading up to the launch of that and sort of everything that's happened afterwards. Now, you know, later this year, you know, rumor has it that you know the Hong Kong Shenzhen Connect will launch as well. If we've seen this much of a rally heading towards a bubble with Hong Kong Shanghai Connect, what can we expect with the Shenzhen? Then connect. Um, to me, I, I think it will boost um, the local Hong Kong stock market as well because there's a, a first of all, long time ago we talk about the, the stock connect and from only Shenzhen to Hong Kong, but now uh, Shenzhen as well. Uh, it will be delayed, but um, sooner or later it will come. So just a matter, um, just a matter of the timing. But I think um, because the Shenzhen stock market is overvalued if we talk about the Sunjen um, Composite Index. So it may make also the, the eight shares and also the local Hong Kong stock market more like A share style, like very volatile. Um, one day, 10%, something like that. And I will expect this. So, yeah, just like a roller coaster, just buckle, buckle your seatbelts. All right, Dickie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Dickie Wong, and he is the executive director at Kingston Securities. Stuart, you know, uh, some of the analysts are saying that uh, they don't expect either a bubble or a sell-off because the biggest beneficiary is the Chinese government. Do you agree? Um, Not necessarily, but the Chinese government is a beneficiary because it it, it continues to see increases in values. But I don't think it's going to be that will be the cause. Um, Dickie's got a number of things there that uh, he's covered, and I think I agree with a lot of it. You know, we haven't got the catalysts that will cause a, the bubble to burst yet coming into place. But I, and I do agree with him. It is likely that the government will at some point step in and say enough is enough, and I don't think it will regard its own beneficial. Uh, status here as being that important to stop this this uh, surge in values. Mm. All right, let's take a quick look at the numbers uh, this morning. The Nikkei is up three tenths of a percent to twenty thousand three hundred and twenty-two. Australia's ASX two hundred is up point one two percent to five thousand five hundred forty-one, and Seoul's Kospi up five points or three tenths of a percent to two thousand and thirty-four. In currencies, the euro is valued at. At 1.12 US dollars, the US dollar is trading at 123.46 yen, and one pound sterling buys you 12 Hong Kong dollars and 12 cents, or one US dollar and 56 cents.
Any idea about what to do for the holidays? How about going on a trip? Mm, what about dengue fever? Well, always make sure you do the right things to prevent mosquito bites. So that means I should wear light-coloured and long-sleeved clothing and trousers, and use a mosquito repellent. Right, and also make sure you get a room with air conditioning or a bed with a mosquito net, and don't go near any areas where there's thick scrub or undergrowth. Then you should have a bite-free holiday. The time is now 8.19 a.m. and you are listening to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotrahora. South Korea has reported three more fatalities yesterday, taking the country's death toll to 19 as four new cases were confirmed. And a 65-year-old man has died in Germany from medical complications after being treated for the MERS virus. Is Hong Kong equipped to deal with an outbreak. Let's bring in our next guest, Natasha Khan, who is a reporter for Bloomberg. Good morning, Natasha. Hey, good morning. Natasha, how concerned should Hong Kong be of a MERS outbreak? Um, I think that, I mean, in terms of imported cases, um, it's possible that it, there, there might be some, you know, going forward with international travel. But in terms of how prepared Hong Kong is to contain that, which I think is the more important question, I think we've seen in recent weeks that uh, Hong Kong is really on top of the situation. And, you know, any cases that may arise should be quickly and efficiently contained. Would you say that Hong Kong is actually better prepared than South Korea or even some of the other countries that it may or may not spread to? Um, I think that Hong Kong definitely has uh, a pretty advanced uh, preparedness plan. I mean, they've been talking about the health department for a number of years now, and obviously ever since SARS, uh, the government takes uh, infection control uh, even more seriously. It was a wake-up call for everybody. Um, And so you're seeing, you know, things like in the past few weeks, uh, lots of testing of suspected cases, a lot of protocol which has been communicated to healthcare professionals across the city. And, you know, you see generally frontline workers who are very aware of the risks and they know what to watch for, which should be more reassuring to people here. Now, the numbers are still small, but, you know, how serious would you say the situation is? Is it likely to be contained, uh, you know, in South Korea or, you know, is it likely to get worse before it gets better? Um, I think, obviously, uh, it's very unfortunate what's happened in in South Korea. But, uh, you know, just yesterday, the WHO, uh, you know, who had sent a a commission of of experts there, you know, announced that the number of new cases appears to be declining, uh, which suggests that containment measures that have been in place have, you know, had an effect in reducing new infections. So that hopefully is an encouraging sign. I mean, of course, it's not an excuse to not be, you know, vigilant still and, and take every precaution. Uh, but, but the numbers um, suggest that, you know, the, the infection control measures are uh, working. Hopefully. Natasha, this is Stuart. Um, why are we not focusing more on the Middle East itself as opposed to Korea? Uh, because we see how uh, we still have a lot of uh, airline traffic between Hong Kong and the Middle East, and the number of deaths in Saudi Arabia alone is about ten times that of Korea. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think um, that is an interesting um, question, and in that, you know, I think anyone who ha- is, is sort of preparing warnings for people to try to protect themselves, um, you know, from Earth would, be, would say, you know, one of the major things is please don't have, avoid contact with camels, for example. So, you know, I think this is a disease which 
in Saudi Arabia, you've seen a lot of cases, a lot of deaths over a long period of time, but potentially because in South Korea, it's spread much more rapidly, which obviously caused a lot of scare because you have a lot of people, uh, let's say doctor shopping and waiting in emergency rooms for a long time to see a doctor, which, you know, sort of quickens the spread of, of the disease there at, at that time. In Saudi Arabia, potentially, you know, you, you might, let's say, get in contact with a camel and, and get the disease, but... It, I guess potentially the warning should be if you're traveling there, try to avoid those things. So maybe that's mm. part is, of the rationale. Is Dubai, Dubai affected? Um, I don't think they have as many cases as Saudi Arabia has. Saudi Arabia still remains to be the the country with the most cases so far. Dubai has had, I think, I, actually, I, I unfortunately I don't know the... All right, Natasha, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. That is Natasha Khan, and she is a reporter for Bloomberg. Well, the outlook for new steel orders in China over June deteriorated from May, while expectations for flat steel prices over the coming month were also depressed. This is according to uh, the latest Platts China Steel Sentiment Index. So let's bring in our next guest, Paul Bartholomew, who is uh, Platts's uh, managing editor and Steel and steel for steel and raw material. Steel raw materials. Good morning, Paul. Yeah, hi. Good morning, Vanessa. How are you? Uh, good. Thanks for joining us on Money for Nothing. So uh, the Chinese steel market looks pretty gloomy, according to your Platts uh, China Steel Sentiment Index. Can you tell us why? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, so, so we we do this monthly survey, and essentially it's asking um, you know industry participants how they see the you know the month ahead, what are their expectations and their outlook. And so the latest one, the, the one we do at the beginning of June, that sort of fell um, down to sort of forty two point two points. Uh, so it's essentially you know out of a hundred, a bit like a sort of a, a PMI, and that that was a big drop from May sixty eight point two. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we're almost at the we're almost at the sort of half halfway points of the year, and I, and I think um, it's very difficult to see any any sort of great uh, you know reasons for optimism over the, over the next six months. Um, at the moment, you know, China's sort of coming into a sort of slightly sort of hotter summer months, and that's a time when act, uh, construction activities sort of slows down, and some of the steel mills, you know, carry out maintenance of their facilities, which which is a sort of de facto production cut in some ways. But you know, prices are incredibly low um i think they've sort of i think hot roll coil prices have have come off something like uh, you know 30 odd percent since the start of last year so re- really at very very low levels and also the big thing that's been keeping china going particularly in the steel market has been its exports um it's still it's still exporting may was it was another sort of bumper month but um you know without that export outlet i think things are quite bleak there's just not enough domestic um demand to absorb all the steel that um china's producing at the moment so i think that you know generally the people we talk to um there every day are you know fairly pessimistic about um the coming months so uh, you know two cases domestically and you know the domestic uh, situation as well as export as you mentioned Domestically, could it be argued, you know, that uh, with a property bust, let's say, in China, uh, there's less of demand for construction and that's affecting steel? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, property is the big one, really, because, I mean, that accounts for roughly, you know, depending on whose estimates you look at, but something like 45, 50% of all steel consumption in in China. So what if that uh, particular sector is not firing, then that has a huge sort of I- impact. Um, I mean, the, I think the sort of received wisdom is that the China property sector will restart to recover, um, you know, over the, over the sort of back half of the year. The problem is there's a massive overhang of supply. There's, there's something like 48 million empty apartments uh, in China, and uh, and really mo- most of the sort of you look at some of the uh, Chinese official data, it's it's still pretty negative. If there's any growth at all? It's it, you know it's it's not very much. And then the other one is sort of manufacturing, and you know I'm sure you've seen some of the PMI data, and that's uh, it's just ticks up a little bit mm. um, in the most recent one, but it's it's still sort of just just a ba- you know it's barely sort of in in growth territory. So those those two industry segments not offering. Um, you know, much uh, much demand has a huge impact. So last year, you know, China very much sort of exported its way out of out of trouble. The problem is the rest of the world's getting very unhappy with this. I've just been at our conference in Europe, and that was the main topic for the whole two days, was, you know, how do you deal with the, the level of Chinese steel imports? So you're starting to see um, a few sort of um, you know, anti-dumping investigations, or I should say a lot of anti-dumping investigations, a few sort of tariffs. Nothing's been particularly effective so far, but if that if some of those outlets you know start getting closed down for China, that's going to put even more stress on prices in the steel sector. They've got to sort of focus more on the domestic market. Uh, with uh, China being such a big uh, user of steel, and India is likely is also a big user and manufacturer of steel. How impacted is India by this? Yeah, I mean, India's a very interesting one, isn't it? Because, I mean, there's so, there's so much potential upside. It's just a case of, you know, at what speed, you know, is, is it going to what grow? What speed I mean, and where? <laughs> India, India, like so many other markets around the world, you know, have also been impacted by, um, you know, Chinese steel imports. And the, prob- the problem is it just, uh, you know, just makes it hard for, the, you know, various domestic steel sectors to actually, you know, fulfill their ambitions and just uh, ensure that, their you know, their companies are still making money because they're being so undercut by... Um, Chinese imports. I mean, India has huge plans to triple its steel, crude steel production capacity to around about 300 million tonnes a year by, I don't know, 2025, which is, you know, extremely ambitious. But even if they got sort of halfway there, that's going to bring on a lot of new steel. The problem is, um, you know, while India wants to develop, can, you know, can they hang around and wait for their, you know, steel companies to bring on that new capacity? You know, why not import sort of Chinese steel in the, in the meantime? So, they, you know, they've got a bit of a, a dilemma there as well. Quite an unlikely prospect there. All right, Paul, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Very interesting uh, stuff indeed. That is Paul You're Bartholomew, welcome. and he is the managing editor for Steel and Steel Raw Materials at Platts Asia. The Nikkei is up uh, 0.13% to 20,283. Uh, Sol's Kospi is also up now six tenths of a percent or 32 points to 5,567. And, uh, excuse me, that was a Australia's ASX 200. Uh, the Kospi is uh, down 0.12% to 2026. Gold is currently valued at $1,180.50 per ounce and Brent crude oil is at $63.71 per barrel. So uh, here we are at the end of a Wednesday and sort of heading into... um, 
Uh, a day which will tell us what is the outcome of the U.S. Fed's monetary policy decision, or at least uh, the next one that we've been waiting for. Stuart, what else should we be keeping our eye on? Well, it's a triple treat, isn't it, this week? It's the FOMC meeting, as you say, uh we probably get an indication of increases in interest rates. Uh, we may get an indication of the Greek exit from the euro. And uh, possibly the pan-democrats will block the current government moves to uh, improve democracy in Hong Kong. So triple treat week. Triple treat week. All right, Stuart, thanks for joining us. That's Stuart Wolfcroft. He is a chairman at City Trust and our regular Wednesday co-host on Money for Nothing. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, wrapping up for this morning's edition of the show. The weather forecast today will be mainly fine and very hot, apart from one or two isolated showers in the morning. The temperature right now is 29 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 80%. And here's Sam with the news. Lawmakers are expected to vote later this week on the most contentious political reform package since the 1997 handover. They'll begin debating the plan later today and a vote is expected late tomorrow or Friday. As Otis Wong reports, the package won't pass if all 27 pan-Democrat lawmakers stick to their vows to vote it down. Pro-government parties have a majority of seats, but not enough to pass the package on their own. They need to persuade at least four of the 27 pan-democrats to support the package, but that appears unlikely. The pan-democratic camp says the proposed electoral method would pre-screen future chief executive candidates and would not give Hong Kong people a genuine choice. If the package is voted down, as widely expected, the next CE will be chosen according to the current system by an election committee of about 1,200 people that is largely handpicked by Beijing. NATO has accused Russia of saber-rattling after President Putin announced changes to strengthen the country's nuclear